Today is Wednesday, November 6th, 2019. Just before 5 p.m., the City of Greenville responded to a Freedom of Information request we filed October 24th. We filed that request based on information from multiple sources. Those sources said Greenville Police had uncovered what they believed was possibly new evidence in the 44-year-old Rufus and Frank Looper murder case. Over the past couple of weeks, we've reached out to the police department, asking for comment about what the sources had said. Tonight, we're still waiting on a response from the police, but we're no longer waiting for official confirmation. Because today, the city of Greenville turned over proof. The sources were correct. So tonight, we're putting out this brief special report to update you with what we've learned about new evidence, where it came from, and whose name was on it. I'm Brad Willis. This is Murder Etc. In the summer of 2019, we'll talk about the minutes from the last meeting. The city of Greenville held a public meeting. Did anybody see anything to be adjusted or comments on it? It was a meeting of the city's public safety citizen review board, something the board does once a quarter. It was a quick meeting last last quarter, I remember that. That's the voice of the board's chairwoman, Dorothy Dow. Just yesterday, Dow won a citywide election for city council, unseating Republican incumbent George Fletcher. But last July, she was running this meeting. The Citizen Review Board exists to address grievances from police and fire department uniformed employees, and it listens to public comment about the police and fire department. It also listens to the chief of police, Ken Miller. Everybody seemed really positive and really happy with- If you look at the minutes of this meeting, you'll see at the end of the very first paragraph, this quote, no media representatives were present. And if a member of the media had decided to check in on the board by looking at those meeting minutes after the fact, they would have seen absolutely nothing in those minutes about what happened about an hour into the meeting. To know that, you'd have to file a Freedom of Information request for the audio. When we got that recording today, I quickly scanned through the audio, stopping about every five minutes listening for anything about what the sources had said had been discussed. Almost exactly one hour into the recording, I heard a name I knew. A uh, county deputy by the name of Looper and his father were murdered. Looper. I heard Police Chief Ken Miller's voice talking about Frank Looper. And what he had to say in a public meeting might be one of the most shocking things you've heard on this podcast. <laughs> The entire recording lasts about an hour and 15 minutes. For this special report and the sake of time, we're only going to play sections of that recording. And full disclosure here, the recorded audio of the board members is very clear, but the chief didn't have a microphone in front of him. So we've done a very small amount of post-processing on the audio to make it easier to hear what the chief has to say. The important part begins at the end, as Dorothy Dow gets to the end of the meeting agenda. Good. Anybody have anything else? It was dinner time, just after 6.30 p.m., a time when almost no one would want to extend a meeting. Um, I do have one thing I just want to share. Um, 
But the chief spoke up, and what he said would shock everyone in the room. I'm in preliminary stages, but there was uh, there was a shooting, a murder uh, in the 1970s, uh, in which a uh, county deputy by the name of Luper and his father were murdered. With that introduction, Chief Miller said another familiar name. A gentleman by the name of Wakefield was convicted of that murder. Uh, African American gentleman who has for um, for all time since he's been identified as a suspect proclaimed his innocence. Miller took a minute to explain to the board about his time working in North Carolina, where he had worked with advocacy groups that helped people who had been wrongly convicted. And then the chief returned to talking about Charles Wakefield Jr. A gentleman that served 34 years in prison, he's on parole, he's living in North Carolina, uh, still proclaims his innocence. At that point, Chief Miller hadn't said anything we didn't know. But then, he said this. Uh, I can tell you that um, there is some question about um, his conviction uh, based on documents that surfaced over the past couple of years. Questions about Wakefield's conviction based on documents that surfaced over the past couple of years. Miller spent a little more time talking about North Carolina's innocence programs and South Carolina's lack of them. He said he found a grant through the Department of Justice, one that would help a law school set up an innocence advocacy group. I will tell you, I also reached out. There was a grant opportunity uh, through Department of Justice to initiate innocence clinics in law schools, to partner with you know, local governments and law schools, and uh, I forwarded that to USC School of Law. They're like the only game in town. <laughs> and unfortunately, I, I don't believe that there was any traction with that. Um, I was hoping there would be. But uh, at this point, there's not. It would be nice to be able to have that resource in South Carolina uh, when there are questions and there are people, uh, a place for people to turn. Miller said he had asked one advocacy group to work with his investigators on what the police had found. It may result in the decision that, you know, the conviction is the conviction. It may result in our ability to identify that something else took place. But he got parole, even as a... He's on parole now. 34 years later. Okay. So, you know, the concern is, is if somebody served time, no matter what time, for a crime they didn't commit, you don't want that to happen. So did you get new evidence showing his possible innocence or another possible suspect? Well, was Up until this point, we had no confirmation of what was in this new evidence. We'd heard rumors, but nothing we could confirm. But now, the chief was about to lay it out in a public meeting. There was a letter that was written. So this occurred during the Cash Williams Sheriff tenure, four-year tenure, back in the 70s. Um, he was replaced uh, in the election by Johnny Mac Brown. Mm -hmm. That was his first elected term uh, as sheriff. And this murder occurred during Cash Williams, and there was a lot of question about, you know, his his behavior and, and the lawfulness of a lot of his activities and behavior. Um, in any event, uh, he had uh, more than. There are a lot of parallels to recent 
situation. <laughs> he had more than one mistress, apparently. And so we don't know what that letter means, but there was a letter from one who said that uh, he and some of his uh, team members may have been involved in that murder and framed this individual. So we have that letter, and it was recently discovered as we cut locks off of lockers in the shared locker room at the law enforcement center, uh, a locker that probably hadn't seen daylight in two or more decades. The board asked an obvious question. Just how did the cops run across this stuff? They say it was locked away for decades. We were clearing out lockers that nobody claimed. And... It just, the, the notice sat on there, nobody claimed it, cut the lock, and we found a number of things that were decades old. And in there, there was a small box with folders in it, and in the folder was a letter. And we had no idea who that locker was issued to, who had it. There was no indication of a name to whom we could, so we don't know whether it was city or county. But it was the letter saying that he might have been letter. framed. Yeah, and so, um, so that concerns me enough in and of itself um, to warrant a, a look because it wasn't with the case file. The letter implicating Sheriff Cash Williams, the chief said, was not in the police file. That means it was not in the discovery file Charles Wakefield Jr.'s attorneys had during his death penalty trial and not available to any of the attorneys who represented Wakefield during his post-conviction relief hearings and appeals. After those revelations, board member Osa Benson asked for some specific details about the letter and how it related to the case. The chief admitted he was still catching up on the finer points of the investigation because the police file was so big. I don't know all the circumstances of the case. The case file is a box, and I have not reviewed the box. Um, I reviewed some basic facts of the case and gotten some, some fundamental briefing on the elements, or not the elements, but the case facts um, that relate to Mr. Wakefield's conviction. And um, it is still possible that he, that, that this information is bogus, that this information has nothing to do with anything other than a, a lover's spat, if you will. Uh, but it also, there's nothing in the case file that suggests that this letter, this, this letter was ever submitted and vetted, which is a big concern and a big red flag. And so Mr. Wakefield, who has professed his innocence since the beginning, and this letter showing up 36 or 40 years later, or whatever it is, 42 or three years later, um, even though it was written in the 70s, is a concern. Now, part of our problem is also that there are a number of people who are no longer alive related to that case. Uh, but we'll pick through the evidence, and I have all the confidence and faith in the, uh, the Center for Action. This was a good story for a book. Well, there's a podcast out there right now, murder, et cetera. And yes. This reporter who's dug through the case, and he knows more about the case than I do. It's an uh, and and he, has, he, has, he has picked apart the question of guilt as well. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but this letter 
uh, as it queued up and uh, for examination as cold case, but as an innocence case, which is different than a trying to solve a case. So, um, is Mr. Wakefield aware of this? No. Actually, outside of our organization, you all are in. Outside of the police and that board, nobody knew until now. From that point, the board moved on to talk about some of the other recent cold cases the police department had solved. And then, the chief made clear, for him, it's not just a matter of locking people up. It's about locking the right people up. And he came back to the fact South Carolina lacks the kind of advocacy channels that other states have. I'd be glad to lend whatever talents I have and energies I can muster up to help uh, in, in uh, bringing a, a center for actual innocence to South Carolina. I think every state ought to have one. And with that, the July meeting was done. So I need a motion to adjourn. Motion to adjourn. A couple of people signed in there. In a second. And we're all in favor? Aye. Thank you all. And for the next few months, no one outside the police department and the Citizen Review Board was aware of the new evidence. And we still don't know exactly what the police were doing in that time. But we do know what happened in October, when the board met again. There was nothing on the agenda about the Looper murder case, or the new evidence. But at the very end of the meeting, Chairwoman Dorothy Dow asked the chief to update what was happening. Last question for me. Any updates on the Wakefield case from the North Carolina group looking at it? Get the uh, podcast. Our, uh, our team is looking at it. North Carolina's on hold at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, our team has, uh, has started caring for that case. Uh, three detectives. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, we're, not, we're not ready for their involvement at this point. And, uh, and I've had some discussion with them based on the feedback I've gotten. I'm not so sure that we're going to, but. Mm -hmm. Uh, but right now, I'm still able to move Anything else? I'll take a, a motion to adjourn. So moved. Then a second. Okay. All right. See everybody in January. It wasn't long after that moment we started to hear from our sources. Sources who were concerned about what was happening inside the police department with this evidence. And it was during that same time period, Andy Etheridge got in touch with Don McIntyre, the man who told us he told a Greenville cold case detective about the gun he found. One that we told McIntyre matched the murder weapons make, model, and caliber. Every little box I'd open, I mean, I'd open to see what was in there, to see which pile it went in. Well, there's one shoe box I opened, Open it up, and there was a nickel-plated pistol. That brought us to today, and the release of this recording. We've reached out to the police chief and Dorothy Dow for comment, but at the time of publishing this episode, we've not yet heard back from them. Rest assured, we'll update you with either another special report or on our website, murderetcetrapodcast.com, with anything new we dig up. And in the meantime, we're working on our next full episode, when you'll learn all about the admitted liar who played a role in Charles Wakefield Jr.'s conviction. 
Finally, we'd never have known about this part of the story if it hadn't been for our sources. Sources our ethics compel us to protect. So, if you know something and can help us prove it, get in touch using any of the methods on our contact page. It's on our website. Again, that's murderetcpodcast.com. Thanks for listening to this special report. We'll be back with you just as soon as we know more. Thank you.